folks, welcome back to the show, episode 23, and today we're taking it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we're taking it to the R&B Hall of Fame, and we're hanging with one of the greatest vocalists in music history, the kid who took it from Brooklyn to the Hall of Fame, Little Anthony, with great hits like the one playing right now, Tears on My Pillow, Hurt So Bad, Outside Looking In, Going Out of My Head, Shimmy Shimmy Cocoa Bop, and more. A man that really helped define and shape an era of American history and world music. Honored to have little Anthony here and happy to have you back. You are tuned into the Charlie Boot Show, episode 23, listening on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. For all episodes, head on over to charliebootshow.com and you can find all our social media links there as well. And folks, this is one I don't want to waste a minute to get into. So here he is, from Brooklyn, New York, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the man with the giant voice, Little Anthony. Folks, uh, last week we were in the NFL Hall of Fame, and this week I am honored to be bringing you to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Little Anthony joins the show. Little Anthony, how are you? I'm doing fine, man. How you doing? Or as we say in Brooklyn, how you doing? How you doing? I'm good. You know, we, we're just uh, we're a couple East Coasters right now holding down the whole USA. I'm out in California. You're on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, it, it's a beautiful thing. You know, folks, you're not going out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something, something that has always just been, you know, gone hand in hand with you is perfect harmonies. You know, and we're talking about, you know, in harmony in relation to the sports world, the music world. We're just living. What is the key for you to have perfect harmony? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's perfect. But there are all kinds of harmony. Uh, there's four-part harmony. There's um, melody harmony. It just, it's, it's just a different, each person or group or whatever it may be, if you sing as a group, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a front man, so I don't spend a lot of time in harmonies. <laughs> The right, guys right. singing behind me do. So, um, yeah, basically, um, we we can sing four-part modern harmony, which is jazz, and then basic harmony, and then you've got gospel harmony. So you pick it. There's, there's no particular one that uh, we uh, stick to. We only Whatever the song dictates, that's where we go. Huh. And how long did it take you, like, to find the mesh? Like, if you had if you had different background singers, how long would it take you to to find the chemistry? Well, you know, when you're young, if you talk about the Imperials, I mean, we were kids, you know, and uh, right. actually so there's only one guy, actually the original guy left, that's Ernest Wright. All the rest of them retired uh, years ago. But but that when, you, when you're talking about it, it's just like today, you know, the urban kids doing rap, hanging out with your friends, and, and that in those days, that was what you did, uh, you know, listening to r&b on the radio rock and roll all that kind of stuff and you just kind of get together and you figure out oh i can sing oh you can sing okay let's get together and harmonize you know and um and and most kids at the at that stage in their life of a singers could harmonize they knew how to the different chord changes and different notes so you start singing together and then that's how it happens it's just about i would say about 99.9 percent of the singing groups that that's the way it goes and when did you realize you could just stop a room with your voice? 
I didn't know. My mother says that uh, my mother was a gospel singer. Mm. Uh, she was with her sisters, the Nazareth Baptist gospel singers. My whole family were musicians. My dad was a played tenor and alto. A lot of the big bands in those days in that era in the 40s and 50s. So music was always a part of my life. It was just there, and they tell me my great-great-grandfather was one great singer. and So that's genetic, I believe. But not, and that you don't really know. I mean, you do it, and what you do is you get feedback. People will tell you, oh, you've got a nice voice. Oh, that was nice. And you go to yourself, well, I must be doing something right, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then you start studying it. And listening to other singers and, and and stuff like that, see what they're doing, and then maybe you can learn something. It's really experience. It's trial and error, and uh, that's how, how it goes. When I, the, the, to this day, I go out and I sing, and I tell people when they, a lot of people ask me, um, "Ooh, how did you get that voice?" I said, "I didn't get it. It's, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It's it's by my God. The only thing I can think." 99.9% of the singers, it's a gift. I mean, look at you, Rita Franklin, the lady Rita Franklin. I mean, it's just she was unbelievable. So, you know, you just, people will tell you, oh, you can sing. You know, the worst thing in the world is for a guy or a girl to believe they can sing when they can't. That's horrible, you know. <laughs> it's horrible for everyone, folks. Right. Or there's some people, you know, they, they're in the, and they're taking a shower and in the bathroom somewhere with some echo and they start singing. Oh man, I can sing, you know? <laughs> the only way, the only way you're going to find out is you sing. And then people will tell you if you're any good or not. That had, that, does it blow your mind now how easy it is to produce records with the digital, in the digital era? Well, I, you know, it's, I'm old school, and you know I'm I'm from that era, from the Rita Franklin and the Dells, and the, you know Stevie Wonder's. We, we we came out of an era where it was uh, a mic and a light. You know, it was just they were still using tapes in those days. You know, um, it, 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 in that fact, they can't even match the sound that uh, Nat Cole had or what Sinatra had, because mm-hmm. that was called a monologue. Today, everything is digitized and everything is washed. You know, it's so clean, you know, you want to throw some dirt on it. You know, it's just too clean, yeah. you know. And, yeah. and and so a lot of, and a lot of the British groups and English groups and a lot of other people around the world are still using recording basically through tape. And then what they do is they put it through Pro Tools. And then they, they so they can get that sound, that thing that we, we, that was out there in those days. You know, you, you, if you're old enough to remember the eight, eight the eight, the, the cassettes, you know, the old eight reel, mm-hmm. the, the big old fat things used to put in. That oh, sounds A-track. unbelievable. Eight track, yeah. And that stuff came direct. It was all mono, mono. It wasn't anything that it is today. Now, saying that, I mean, things change. We're in a technical driven world, you know? And mm-hmm. either you like it or you don't. I don't. I'm a symmetric. I don't care. <laughs> you still got to sing. You still got to make it happen. So whatever. I, I doesn't. I don't really doesn't bother me. But you know, I just still. I I do kind of like the way we used to do it back in the day. I was. We were having this conversation in regards to football about how the longer training camps back in the day made the athletes, um, you know, more ready and on point. Now, when you were going to go into the studio, let's say you were in the Imperials or headed into the studio, how much prep time and uh, like practice did you guys put together before you hit the studio on a record? 
Um, and then how long did it take to, to really finalize once you got there? Well, basically, you know, in, in that day, we, you, had to, you had to be able to know your craft or sing or know how to do it right. So it right. didn't take us a, a bit of time. It, we worked with a uh, simple thing. Uh, um, we would work with the, 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 the uh, writer and the producer. And sometimes we're in a little room with a with a with a upright piano against the wall, you know. And we they click around the piano, play the song, and you know, you get to learn the melody. If I'm the leader, I'd learn the melody, and then we start thinking about what what harmonies would go with that. Now that was it, and then you go in the studio, and uh, you know, my in fact, when I started in the studio, there was only four tracks. That was weird, man. And then it went to 12 tracks, and then it went to 24 tracks, and then the rest is history. But yeah. it was, it was, um, it, it, you didn't have anything to compare it with, so you didn't know it was really that archaic, you know. And so we didn't spend a lot of time. A lot of people, I, I won't name any names or singers or something, but really, really not that good. So they have to spend a lot of time with technical, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. when we did going out of my head, I did exactly five takes, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the way it was. Sinatra was that way. He, he'd go in the studio, man, he'd go in and get out. A Shaka Khan was like that, man. So these people are so good that they just say, hey, let's rap, let's do this, you know? But some of these kids today, because they have so much aid and technical aid, they're really not, some of them are not good. There are many are excellent. But some of them really are not, and they, and when they go on stage and they have to duplicate, they have to have every technical thing going for them. Yeah. If anything breaks down a track or anything, you know, they don't, no, they don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that, I mean, of course, there are great musicians nowadays, but do you think that then there was more of an overall complete artist or complete or maybe more of a talent level to the musicians and the singers? No, you know, musicians still musicians. They have to know how to, if they're studio musicians, they're two different types. There are right. bands, some bands, guy can't even read, you know, they, but they play with each other. They have great airs. You know, they can hear things. And that's, but a studio musician must be able to read. He's got to, he's got to be good because he's going to be backing up every kind of a singer in the world, you know? So they're right. called studio musicians. Just the musicians that travel on the road or do that. It, some are good readers, some are not, not, but it's not required. But in recording, it's required. Well, I guess you could say there's uh, two kinds of people in the world, you know? <laughs> Something like that. We just lost the great Aretha Franklin, and... Uh, you were able to attend the funeral. Uh, what did Aretha mean to you, and uh, and how was it to see everybody celebrating her life? Yeah, well, we've been we were friends, acquaintances for over fifty something years. I met Aretha in nineteen sixty, I believe. I was with the I was doing a, a fair date. I think it was a Michigan State Fair or something, and it was around Detroit and. Um, and we were doing that with some another band, and then we had the Brenda Lee was on the show. I was on the Imperial Blue Lamp, and we were on the show. And one of the girls said that, oh, uh, uh, Rita wants, wants to see if you all want to come over to the house, have something to eat. Because she, that's the kind of person she was. She's a great cook. You know, you want something to eat, hang out. And that was the first time I met her. 
Brenda Lee, myself, and a couple other musicians went over to her house. And uh, that time she she had a big, beautiful piano, a white piano. It was a baby grand in the living room. And that was a, she was just, uh, Rita was just people, you know. But she was a businesswoman. She was really sharp. She had to learn. In fact, I had found out that when she used to go on the road, when she was like 18, 16, 17, she would be out there with James Brown. Uh, and a lot of these promoters, well, shifty promoters would run off with the money when they wouldn't get paid. So she was the first artist that said, I, I sing, but I get paid up front. She was the first to stop hey. Yeah, she wow. was the first to do that. And she did everything in cash. She didn't want any checks. She didn't want any cashier checks. She wants to see greenbacks. You know what I mean? And she hey, get that present. a lot. Yeah, she paid. She did a lot of money, and sometimes she would put it in. Uh, in fact, I did a TV show with her uh, called Shindig back in those days on NBC, and uh, as we were sitting there, and I was sitting in the with her. Uh, it was fooling around between takes, and uh, and she had a pocketbook under there, man, and then all her money was in that pocketbook. <laughs> she put it under the piano. Wherever she go, even to this day. Yeah, she and she made a lot of money. Rita was very frugal, you know, and yeah. she did. And when she was younger, she flew. But she hated it. So in her middle years, she wouldn't fly. <laughs> she had her own Madden bus. Oh, she had a she had a home riding right out there, boy. You could believe that thing. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it had everything that a home would have, and she would be in that bus, and that's where she. That's how she would do it. And and as a person, I mean, she's great, man. I mean, like, I and her always had this sort of relationship. Uh, I, it was respect. It was honor. It was it was it was something unique. So much that many people have been this new. Uh, in fact, when my son was talking, you know, we were going, we wanted to we asked the, asked the family, "Is anything we can do?" And they said, "You could come to the funeral." You know, it's a celebration. And that's why I did. I got on a plane and went. And it was it was something else. But um um but in life, uh Rita was just a Rita. She she was just as normal as if she didn't sing, you didn't know it was a Rita, you wouldn't know she could sing. Hmm. But she was just a, everyday people. You know, she was everyday people just like uh Simon Stone said, everyday people. We are everyday people, that's what she was. She was down to earth and loved Detroit. She would leave that place out. Love up there with that city. And so all of the Motown people, everybody knew, everybody knew everybody. And uh, Smokey was very close to her. They both were raised together in the same neighborhood. So Smokey Robinson. So all of us knew her. And everybody that was in the business knew her one way or another. That's, That's how she affected all of us. She was the queen. She was highly respected and honored. I mean, she won every award you could possibly win. She wasn't trying to. That was freedom, this and that, and this and you know, presidents and, and that's that's why you see so many dignitaries there at the funeral. I mean, it was unbelievable. Who's who in the political world was there? That's, she's really the queen, folks. Oh, she was, man. She was the queen, and she didn't give herself that name. The business did. When she was right. young, man. That's the key. I don't yeah. say that I would love to do a duet. On one hand, I, I wanted to do it. On the other hand, I was scared. Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm saying, how can I match up with this woman? My 
goodness, <laughs> you know. But on the other hand, I wanted to sing with her, so it, it's crazy. I mean, two just two iconic voices when we're talking about you and Aretha's. Now, what do, what do two folks, you know, what do fo- uh, with legendary voices when you two get together? Do you talk about singing? Like, what what was the, what was the conversation? You know, I think it's more like we don't talk much about singing because you do right. it all the time. Yeah, we talk about maybe like everybody else. <laughs> old gossip. <laughs> or did you hear about this one and that one? I mean, that, it really. You really didn't get around to talking about that. Sometimes she would go, she self-taught. She taught her something to play piano. I mean, she became really good. And wow. she she would sit around the piano sometimes, be plinking and fooling around, that's all. It was, it was like she loved her piano, and that's what she played most of her time. In fact, uh, you know what made the, the whole business, and I mean everybody, just blown out? Even people in sports, I always compare sports with, with the, the singing world, the performing world. They're, they're like, right. absolutely like, we right. both perform. We all perform, mm-hmm. we do. We perform. And she, she did something that I, we all respected Luciano Pavarotti. Everybody the same said, God dang, who's this guy? You know? Right. And he did a thing called Nessun Dorma. And it was the beautifulest Spitting, uh, in fact, he got a Grammy for it, you know, and it's very, it's operatic, it's very difficult to sing, and I even thought about it, but I said, but then we'd have to have, like, I'd have to have a lot of musicians, a lot of violins and all that kind of stuff in order to pull this off, so I wanted to do it, and one of the guys in the group wanted me to do it, you know, with David, but but I, I just didn't feel that I could do it as good or comparable, and if you can't do it good or comparable, you should mess with it. And but she did that song. But when Pavarotti got sick and couldn't get his Grammy, be there for the Grammys, she took his place. And everybody, she said, "I'll sing it." Everybody said, "You're gonna sing that song, Donna?" Not only did she sing it, she sang it in Italian. How <laughs> you like that? I don't know if you saw that. You gotta YouTube that. Uh, it, it was 1999, the Grammys, and she sang that. And oh my goodness. The, the whole, it was like everybody just saw that going, what? That was her zenith. And she she knew she nailed it because, and, and before she died, she was at her piano. I saw it on Facebook. Somebody took a uh one of her grandchildren was, uh, you know, taping her while she, I mean, or on her phone, taking a picture, you know, movie thing, whatever they call it, of right. her while she was plinking on the, on the piano and she was plinking. That's all. Jeez. And she knew that she had nailed it, you know? Oh, that's beautiful. Just like Lady Gaga, everybody knew Lady Gaga, and then she sang from Sound of Music. Blew everybody mm-hmm. out of the room. Because a lot of times they, you hear artists and you, you think, well, that's all they can do. No, most musicians, I mean, I've taught people good, can just do anything, basically. But they do right. what they do, but that's how they get paid. That's what they're known for. But once in a while, we like to step out of the norm and try something different. And she did, but she she took it to a place I, I'll always remember as long as I'm on this earth, how great that was to be able to pull that off the way she did. His key, his music, everything. They had the orchestra, they had the conductor, they had the singers, the, op- uh, the choir, had everybody. For him, she just stepped in and did it. And, th- and I like what you said that I think every musician should should respect and follow is if you can't do something better or the same at the same level, 
Don't mess with it. Don't mess with it. Ian Sinatra was the one that said that. He said, don't mess with it, Pally. You know, and you, a lot of <laughs> singers learn that from Sinatra, and he's right, you know? So we are, we're taught to always make a song of your own. You should. But anybody can sing 40 different songs, uh, top 40 that you can hear in any holiday in band. You know what I mean? That's right. not it. This is, you can copy stuff. But when you take a song that's been made famous by some other artist so much so that it identifies with that song, identifies with them, you better make sure you do it better right. or comparable. Because if you don't, it's, it just it doesn't hang. It doesn't wash. And from the experience of being on stage, it, look, you compare that with football. They were some of the greatest running backs in the world. And if you ask mm-hmm. football running backs, you know, how, what kind of style they have, they never could really explain it. Because a lot of times I hear announcers say, well, he runs, he's got that style of this or that. Or, you, know, you can't. You run. You understand? If you have peripheral yeah. vision and you're that good and you're that gifted and talented, you're going to be a hug of a back. How can you compare backs? I can't. I mean, I look, right. I look at Jim right. Brown sometimes, you know, and I say, dang, man, that's, that's interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of great backs. And all of them were different. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's just something that I don't think what the cats I know football I've talked to, they really, they look at things like we as singers do, and we look at the guys and say, that was pretty cool. And then you try to make it your own. You make it your style. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? You say, well, he runs, like you hear somebody say, he runs just like so-and-so. Really? I can't tell. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we're in a world of comparison. <laughs> yeah. So, Crazy. And I can't figure that one up. He does this. He makes it. And I go, no, 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 no. He does what he does. Like, like how can somebody run like a, a rock? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you compare that? I remember back. I've seen some of the greatest tight ends in the world, but they were all uniquely different. But they, they all caught the ball. you got to catch the ball. So singing is the same way. I mean, you got to be able to do the song. You know, so uh, I, I, that's why I think there's people who are just unique. And whether it be baseball players, football players, basketball players, they're unique. You can't compare. You know, that people say, well, you know, uh, Michael Jordan and, and, and LeBron. Michael was in another era. It was a different style. It, and there, it, it's it's totally different. Totally yeah. different, man. Even in football. Listen, man, I remember, man, all the stuff that they took out of football because of, because of the injuries that football players were having. And I once said to someone that they said, I don't know why all these injuries. I said, you know why? They're bigger, they're faster, and they're stronger. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And now they got more padding than a car. Yeah, right. Because I remember the guys in those days, man, Tate, all those guys, days of free safety, used to spare. Your helmet is what you use. Today you can't do that. You know? The rules have changed, man. It's like all sports. Things have changed. You know, it's just, man, somebody once said if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, there's more, maybe because of the protocol in those days of um, having head injuries, and maybe they didn't know that they had head injuries. I, I'm sure they didn't. A lot of them are paying the price. But oh, at yeah. the time, no one knew about concussions. No one knew, really knew how Batman, you know, <laughs> nobody knew. I mean, then they learned from doctors and people came up and say, you know what? 
That's that's what happened because we didn't hear about a lot of concussions because no one thought about concussions. <laughs> the guy would get get his. They used to say he got his bell rung, his dinger. Yep. You know, <laughs> and he could go right back in the game. So they look at the eye. Oh, you okay? Get in there. <laughs> So it's entirely different, man. It's just like it's just like seeing um, Gladys Knight said. You know, we always use a light and a mic. That's all we know from that era. Obviously, it's better now, man. Because now you got air monitors, man, and buzz and all kind of stuff you can use, and it works. It's mm-hmm. good. But in those days, man, we put our hands high air. Like you said, man. That was that magic sound getting captured, that that natural sound. Does. You know, it's a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing, man, and, like, it was raw. And so I, I understand for, for the day it's pretty rough, man, because these cats are stronger. They got, they're taking supplements and all kinds of crap today. You know, mm-hmm. now it's a science of how to get big, you know, yeah. strong. And and then and they, 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 a lot of football players had a special, special trainers to pick their speed up. You know, mm-hmm. and most of those are track men teaching them how to do that. Yeah, it's crazy. Everybody's you know got their own camp now, and then they come join the team for a week, and then you know it's crazy. It's hey, you know, I remember when Spider Locker, I just be with the Giants. Maybe was my neighbor, and he, oh. was, he had two he had two jobs. <laughs> he worked wow. in the stock market in the off season wow. because they weren't making that kind of money, man. They had to have two jobs. Today, wow. I am blessed enough to be in. I'm old enough to be around. But I remember the old days, and compared to today, I can't believe it. These guys, man, and stay in shape. They're in shape 24-7. Oh, yeah, wow. They come in the camp in shape, you know. Back the old dudes, man, or many parties, whatever they did, they got heavy, and they dropped the weight and everything in there. But now you, you, you report the camp today, you better be a certain weight. <laughs> So it's yeah, but I can understand, man, why why it is today because, like I said, these cats are so fast. I um I was on the sidelines a lot. I knew Bill Parcells was a friend, I knew him a long, a long time back in the day. So I used to go to Giant Games. He would, you know, I'd go stand on the sidelines. And wow. man, magical and years, folks. Yeah, you stand on the sideline, man. I seen cats fly past me. I know I seen them. They was way down there somewhere, and it was in seconds, man. I said, oh, crap, he's coming my way, <laughs> like a car, you know. <laughs> he might jump out the way, man. And I am blown out of the of athleticism that these cats have, the speed. Hey, you want to like a car? That's doing 20 miles an hour. <laughs> you sprained your neck looking at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, not, I still love to look at it. I'm just fascinated. How how they're so in shape, so tuned their bodies, man. It's un, it's unbelievable. It's great though. It is crazy, man. And speaking of, speaking of Spider and that that iconic, you know, the that '86 season for the for the, for the Giants of wearing the the Spider patch. Uh, do do you do you remember, man, those years when Parcells? What was like? What was one of the keys to speaking of harmony to seeing how Bill Parcells ran those great Giants teams? Like, what what was his key? He was dry. He drove those teams. So he was a he's a marshmallow, as I know, it's a friend. You know, off the field, he was just totally different. But on the field, his guy was a Bobby Knight. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You know, it was a different era. The, the, the players then, they were more in tune, like college kids are to their coaches. Today, man, you got to adjust to them. Right. You know, they feelings get hurt really easy. <laughs> right. Sorry, but very true. <laughs> it's different. You know, like they the day the coaches are, you know, they're not as you know volatile as they was back in the day. I remember, man, Lombardi. He was he was a taskmaster, man. He was he was unbelievable, man. I, all those guys. It, it, um, but today you you look at the sidelines, man. I look at coaches. And they're very, very quiet. You know, they don't get excited as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Everything is scientific. You know what I mean? Guys like Bill Parcells, would they be good coaches? They don't think so. Not the, the reason why I think the way they ran their ship, they couldn't do that today. But this, the more raw. Life. It was way more mm-hmm. raw. Yeah. You know, because he, he came to see my show one time, and um, I was I'm high energy. Well, I used to be, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I was all sweaty, and you know, he came in the, in the dressing room, and he said, "This, my wife was there, my wife Linda," and he said, oh, I, "I love the way you sweat." Mine's been my players. I said, "Dang," <laughs> he, took, he said, "You work, you, you earn it." That kind of guy. That's the kind of kind of coaches was in those days. Today, they have to be psychologists, friends. They have to relate. You have to know the the the, the uh, mental state of players, who they are, where they come from. Back in the day with Bill Parcells and the other cats, man, they didn't care where you came from, <laughs> what you had. If you got a problem, get rid of it. You know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I used to go to the practices, man. They had a practice in the morning. They had a practice, and had then they had lunch, and then they had a practice after lunch. And then they had another practice. We were at four o'clock. They don't do that today. Oh, he'd be he'd be put under the jail today. <laughs> and you know something else you notice all the injuries they're having. But they're working less. Than, why are they getting so many in camp injuries? Well, like you said, man, they're coming in like track stars. I don't know that it could be a lot of reasons that I'm not privy to to know. But I I understand as a fan. Man, cats are getting wiped out in practice, and they're only doing one a day. Yeah, does somebody really need to check that out? Why is that? A lot of the alumni, their their argument on this side is, these guys are coming in like fine-tuned horses, you know, like race horses. Now, better physical condition, better trainers, but no impact. So the second you introduce the impact to the Porsche, you know, it's boom, you know, something goes wrong. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's just interesting. Mm. Now, we talk East Coast sports stars. You also have a gem from the great Yogi Berra. I knew Yogi very well. In fact, I got pictures in my office of me and him and his late wife, Carmen. And um, and Yogi, you know, he used to tell me, he says, you know, me, Whitey, and the Mick, we used to love your songs, man. We loved it. And I said, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> I kind of like the way you play baseball, too. <laughs> He's a sweetheart. He was a nice man. Oh, my God. Can you imagine how many, how many uh, you know, big game stars, you know, Mickey Mantle, how many games before? 
Maybe he hit a bomb over there at the old Yankee Stadium. He was listening to Little Anthony and the Imperials. That has to be such hey, well, a listen, cool Yeah, feeling. and, and I, I thought about that, you know, just like you said that. I go, what? Yeah. And he was a bad ball hitter, too. I asked him, I said, Yogi, how can you hit the way you hit? And I mean, he, he said it almost like the Latin plays. You see the ball, you hit the ball. <laughs> 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 and then I asked him, I said, yeah. I said man, I, I got to know this. Come on, you can tell me. Was Jackie Robinson safe or was he out in a 1955 World Series game? And he said, he, without even batting an eye, it was the one billionth of a second out. <laughs> Yogi didn't play with that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was out. <laughs> he was out. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it's quick to say that to me, man. Out. He's out. I said, okay. <laughs> I know Jim Brown for over 50-something years. Wow. No, I used to know him. All the cats used to, I used to, he used to come in and see us whenever he was in town or something. He would come and see the show. So that was pretty cool. And um, so I get to know those guys. Man. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be a baseball player, but I did play football. I was a, I was a pretty good defensive back. I wasn't too bad, actually. You know, so when you play the game, you have more respect for it. You see it better if you played it. Mm-hmm. What were your favorite cities to play in and party in? Uh, you know, as I'm older now, my favorite place to be is in my house, <laughs> in my easy chair. But when I was young, man, wherever the party was, there were certain cities. I love Washington, D.C., um, Detroit, L.A., uh, Houston, Texas, Oof. Miami. I love Miami. Oh my goodness! Oof. East Coast boy can't go wrong in Miami. <laughs> oh my gosh, Miami! I'm living here now. I'm living like 41 miles from there. I go there sometimes, but uh, uh, it's an interesting city to say the least. But I think when you're a young cat, wow, you know. So and, and, and just like everybody else, they got their favorite little places or whatever they go. They like it a lot. New York City is where I was born and raised, basically. Now I like going to New York. Most players I know like going to New York. That's the big stage. Little Anthony was raised on the big stage, folks. And uh, now another, the you know, Detroit was such a special city. We were talking about it early in regards to Aretha and Smokey. Uh, but w- the impact that Motown had on that era, what was it like when you hit Detroit for the first time? Like, was there was there a certain energy, like? Yeah, it was an energy, yeah, because um, I knew Smokey and Pete and all those cats and Ronnie and you know, those guys passed on. And the one that's alive is Smokey. Oh, yeah, and Claudette, his wife, um, the original. And all the group. We used to play, I used to play a nightclub called the Top Hat in Windsor, right across the river from Detroit in Canada. So a lot mm-hmm. of times uh, Bobby and I knew about it, uh, the Miracles and the other acts knew about it. So they would show up like um, Martha Rees. She would come over. You know, they would, you know, in those days you can just walk over. You can go through the tunnel, or you can. There was not all this. Uh, you had to have a you know, passport. No, in those days it was free, just free. It was nothing. Just walked over. What's your name? That's it. Yeah. And uh, we used to go. I'd go over to Bobby's house, Smokey's house, hang out, and all that kind of stuff. And then um, 
you know, Marvin, Marvin Gaye and all those guys, we all knew each other coming up at the same time. It was just that era. And in fact, I was at the funeral. I was sitting with uh, David Ruffin's granddaughter. And uh, she said, you knew my father. So I knew your father very well. Yes. Well, what is it like for you to think about that now? When you look back at all that history you guys were living, it, it, that's got to just blow your mind. I... Yeah, it does. I sit and I, I, you know, like a lot of people, sometimes I'll be sitting there talking and I have many people say, my gosh, man, you knew who? You knew them? You knew him? You knew what? Oh, yeah. You know, when it, when it happens, you, it just happens. You're there, and, and but then and the time goes by. You realize, oh, my gosh, you were part of that history. Now, mm-hmm. I have become that kind of a person. There's not many of us left. My time is going to come. I believe this earth. But the point mm-hmm. is, is that while now I'm around, a lot, a, lot, a lot of people tap my brain. Because whenever I hear somebody talking like they know what happened, I would say, no, that didn't, that didn't happen. And it's all, it's right. I know, here it is. And I said, you know why it didn't happen? Because I was there. Yeah, I was living it. You know. <laughs> you it. You can't, you're stupid. They try to tell a person that's been around those days what those days were like. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> what the heck? Human nature. You always go to the source, folks. That's where you get the raw, and the raw is where you get the win. Yeah. Now, what was that? How about that with the, your relationship with Smokey Robinson? How did you guys meet, and then what did that relationship mean to you? Well, I met Smokey in, in New York City. He came up. They were trying to get a record contract, the same record company I was with. Uh, Gone and Records, and they were up there to meet with George Gorman, the president. And I walked in to do whatever rehearsal. What I, I don't know what I was in there for, but I came upstairs and then I met Pete, was the first of the group, came up to me and said, Hey man, my name is Pete, I'm with the Miracles, and, and we got this group, and blah, blah, blah. And that's when I met Smokey. That was around 1959. Wow. 59 or 60, one of days. 18 year old little Andy. Yeah, it was just, it was just, we're all kids, man. Smoke is one year, Smokey, Smoke's one year older than me. You, wow. Yeah. Smoke's That's one year older than me, and I'm 77. Both of you not touching 20 yet, meeting at the label. How cool is that? Ah, man, you know, it's just, it's it's pretty cool. Sometimes we old, we call the old times get together and we say, hey, man, um, let's, uh, let's have some dinner, man, and let's lie. <laughs> You get old and start lying. I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's like when I get to get to get, it's just nice to get with the older old acts and we all came up at the same time and we just sit there and talk stuff, man, it's great. Hey, you remember this? You remember that old dead club? Oh, that was a dump, man. You know, things like that. You know? And as I look back, as I'm being 2020 in retrospect, man, I wouldn't trade my life for anything, no. Oh, man. The bad with the good and all of it, and it was some bad boy. But uh, I wouldn't, because now I can look back and say, man, what an adventure, and, you know? And put your fingerprint on the culture, man, big time. Yeah, I'm still doing it, too, but in those, you know, the, the, I, I just remembered how things were. They changed dramatically over the years. That's yeah. the same. So when I, when I go back... I think of the bad, the segregation, and all that crap I went through, and oh, it was terrible. But on the other hand, I could look back and I remembered the camaraderie and the friendships that we built in those years. 
you know, or, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's like we come, we, in fact, when we were inducted into the Rock and Roll of Fame, they were asking, they told us that they were going to say who was going to be the one to induct us. And uh, a Smokey called him. He says, man, I'm the only one can induct those guys, man, because we all came up together. Wow. And you could YouTube that and listen to what he said, how he said it on, on that stage. He said, said come up and get what you deserve. Yeah. yeah. And he said, we're brothers. We are brothers. We're literally brothers. I mean... I mean, we know each other's everything about each other, Man, you know? What did, what did that night, like, What the kid from Brooklyn, the night you hit that stage, Smokey's inducting you, like, what was going through your head when you realized, I'm in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now? It was it was surreal at the time because we had been actually the, uh, one of the people that told us, uh, one of the, the uh, suits, I call them, the top cats. <laughs> said that they, we were dominated. Uh, he said six times, but we didn't. We didn't make the cut. Well, we didn't know that. You know what I mean? I didn't know it. Right, right. So when we got the when we got the call after we did um, we had did the uh, uh, David Letterman show. Paul Schaefer was Paul Schaefer was a big fan. Always was, and one thing led to another, and he was on the committee, and and he does all the music for the for the show of the Rock and Roll show. And he said, you know, he told he told Letterman, he said, I think you should have Little Anthony and Perils on. And then when he did it, he called Mr. Perlman, which is the head of one of the people ahead of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and some other guys, and Paul Simon, Paul Simon, and a few others. Uh, uh, Billy Joel, all those cats, man, came up and said, we got to watch this. So they watched it, and it was right after that we got the call that we were inducted. For our body of work, they looked. They didn't realize. They started doing an investigation, and they said, "My God, that book sold sixteen million tickets." What? Sixteen million. But see, we never got a Grammy because when we came up, there were no Grammys. No such thing. Right. So that's how they they were doing it. They they just would look to see what you've done, what you're doing, or whatever. But they weren't looking in the past. They are now. A lot of people going in there now. I'm so happy. That should have been been in there. Like the Five Royales. This black group was one of the greatest R&B groups ever lived. I mean, they, they did some great, what they used to call race music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they would, they would say, they said, oh my gosh, they got to be in there. The Dells are in the Rock Hall of Fame. I mean, they, it's just amazing. But, but they told us that we, we were inducted. And I, I was with my, oh, what they did was they said, hey, can you be it by your phone? My, my publicist called me, George Dash, and said, man, it, it wants you, you have to be by your phone, you and Clarence. Because they're going to call you. I said, why are they calling us? They ain't getting inducted. <laughs> <laughs> so Clarence said to me, he said, man, they don't call you unless you are inducted. <laughs> and I'm one of these guys, man, you know, I got to see it. I got to know, you know? <laughs> He's and yeah, when, they, when the phone came up, and uh, Mr. Stewart said, uh, "Welcome, you guys." All there a lot of people in the room, and he says, "On behalf of the Rock Hall of Fame, we have to tell you, you've been inducted in Rock Hall of Fame." It was surreal. Oh, the whole trip man. was surreal. Going there was surreal. Getting the 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 the, the 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 trophy was surreal. It was just I like I was saying, "What?" Oh. I mean, I, I went. To, we went to the uh, the. It wasn't the dinner. I what would they call it? Uh, Cocktails and everything, what do they call that? Whatever. And, uh, reception. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, and I'm walking around, and I'm just, just looking. Not everybody was anybody in the show business was there. Even the sports world was there. Mm-hmm. And this guy comes up. He says, somebody wants to meet you, man. I said, who is that? Um, my publisher said, it's Ron Wood. Oh, okay. I okay. said, really? So he kept, so I went up to him, and I'm, so I'm looking around, oh, God dang, a rolling stone. And he starts going, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> what? He said, man, I said, listen to you in Liverpool. That's oh, man, crazy. you were the cat. Well, we got all your records, man. Nick, all of us, man, we love you. And it's true. I found that out when I went to England. It was amazing, all these rock rock bands. They came up to me and said, oh, man, we love you. We used to listen. That's how we learned our craft. And I'm going, you did? <laughs> yeah, that's what gave him the soul over there across the pond. Yeah. That is wild. And, like, and what a journey, too. Like you said, all the different prejudices and stuff that you witness in the country. Um, we, we were talking to uh, Clem Daniels, uh, Raiders' original, one of the original running backs. And there were records he was shattering in Texas in high school and college that – the state wouldn't even allow him to put, they wouldn't allow them to put it in the record books because uh, he was African-American. I mean, what what was it like for you to see, uh, just witness all this history like, well, and, and to see how, how the culture shifted and to live through the civil rights movement? Well, I'm very unhappy. It, it was very difficult because I'm a kid out of New York, which is, you know, it's not Alabama, you know? Right. It was very, very enlightening. In fact, one time I wanted to come off the tour. I couldn't take it. And my mother, who was born and raised in the South, told me, no, you you stay there. She said, do your job. And that's what you're there for, to do your job. So I didn't leave because my mom said, don't do it. Mm-hmm. But it was it was rough. But then on the other hand, I met a lot of great people. Uh, Reverend Luther King I met and Reverend Abernathy. Wow. Uh just all of them. I met many, many, many leaders at that time. So I'm talking to you at the same time, and I'm looking at my, oh, okay, I'm at 180. I'm smoking some meat. <laughs> I'm looking at, oh, I'm cool, 180. <laughs> He's ready to tailgate. The season opens this week, folks. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm smoking this thing, you know. I like to cook. That's my thing. I said, my wife can fix anything. She's, I mean, it's like having a, a plumber in there. You know, you but she, she, she'll fix it. And I cook it, so we, it was a good deal, I think. That's a fair exchange. Yeah, she fixed things. <laughs> so, oh, now, the, the million-dollar question is, does your boy Eli Manning have another Super Bowl in now, him or what? The, the million-dollar question is, does your boy Eli Manning have another Super Bowl in him or what? Man, I, I never met Eli. Um, I never met his brother, Peyton. Um, I know other people, LT and a bunch of other people that were on the team. I knew them. Um, and, um, you know, I was watching practice. I haven't seen you know, I got my little iPad. So I followed them mm-hmm. being a Giant fan. And I followed their, their um, camp. And right. he's throwing as good as I've ever seen him throw. That's all I can say. I don't feel he, you know, he can. He's one of the one of the best quarterbacks, underrated. Reading mm-hmm. defenses, I mean, he's brilliant. But he has to have time. He needs a line, and they screwed up and give this boy a line. He, I don't know why he ended up in the hospital the way he was dumped. 
beaten, uh, knocked down. But he's just uh, very durable. We know that, too. Yeah, he's got a lot of weapons this year. I think, personally, he's going to – when you say – it's hard for me to say another Super Bowl because it takes so many different factors, man, to get to the Super Bowl, you know. It's yeah. a team sport. It has – everything has to line up like the planets, man, to go in there, you know. When you see the Eagles the year before, they was like, what, 3 and 50, 40, 13 or something. And then they come and win the Super Bowl. You know, they they pay off. <laughs> well, the old, the old, the old commissioner, Pete Parcells, always wanted parity. He always wanted that in football. Well, he left this earth. He's got what he wants. It is parity now. So you don't know who. I mean, you're talking about Dell. You, you're talking about, uh, Barkley, Safran. Mm. Uh, you're talking about, oh, they got some weapons that got unbelievable. I mean, really. But that's the mm. offensive line. They fixed it up a bit. You know, they did some work on it. They did pretty good, I think. Watching the, uh, the games, the exhibition game on TV and stuff, he was pretty well the time he played. He was standing straight up. And you give him time to throw, he'll eat, he'll eat you alive. Simple as that. But today's players, you know, the, day, the quarterbacks today, man, are very, very versatile. But football's versatile. You can got you have to be able to do a little of everything. You can't just yeah. be a guard on the offensive line. You got to be able to be the tackle if you have to. Guard, mm-hmm. center. You got to do all this stuff, man. Today's different, yep. man, and 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 so these ball players, man, they they just just remarkable, and I I think that let me put it this way: barring any injuries, the team can stay out of the hospital. Um, they're probably <laughs> yeah, they probably make the, they'll probably make the playoffs. What happens after that? Anybody knows the playoffs are like anything else, man. Anything can happen. Yeah. Look at, look, no, look, I agree. Look, look at New England, man. I was saying, well, they go to another Super Bowl. They're going to win again. Look at this, man. Mm-hmm. And listen, y'all know the Eagles are matching them. Hit the tap. The Giants did it. How do, you, how do you know? I mean, it's some teams, yeah, we all know that Cleveland's been struggling, but they're even better, man. I'm telling you, man. Right. Watch out for Cleveland. Yeah, Baker. The Mayfield show might be a fun one to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, you know the only team I say that seems to just stay in the one neutral, Detroit. I never seen a team like that just doesn't move up and they don't move down. They just stay there. Yeah, they just park. Yeah, I, I, yeah. that's kind of weird. And I remember the Bears when they were the monsters of midway. You know, yeah. now they're marshmallows by the highway, and many <laughs> and, and 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 it had been. And I look up when when was I? Oh, I was at Disney World. My my daughter and my grandson. We we went there. My wife and I. We went with this Universal the other day and hung out for a couple of days. And uh, I'm looking at the news. I mean, the sports came on, and it says Khalil Mack in trade. I said, oh. what, 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 what? And it, and it was gone. I, said, I must have heard this wrong. No, 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 no. I got it wrong. I called Tony up, my son. And I said, did, that, did I just see it here, what I just heard? He said, yeah, Dad. And Raider fans everywhere started singing Tears on My Pillow. <laughs> I guess, man. I mean, they were with that with really up-and-coming quarterback. Everything should be rolling. He's on defense. He, You know, it takes one play or two plays to turn the team around. Now, I'm yeah. hope, I don't know what's going to happen, man, with Gruden. What do you think's gonna happen there? Making a lot of money, there. man. Must have a plan. They got a good deal, though. I mean, gosh, right. for the future. Oh my gosh, two first round picks and a bunch of headed other headed into Vegas. Headed into Vegas too. Yes, yes. So 
I think they've got a long-term plan, and I would give the Raiders the benefit of the doubt. They're closer. They know what's happening. And that maybe they didn't have the dough to give it to Khalil. They, they, they've been killed in, 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 in the cap. I don't know. Well, I think I think I think this is the perfect question, the perfect man to ask this question to now. So Raider fans, listen up, uh, Anthony. You got hits like tears on my pillow, hurt so bad outside looking in, and the Raiders are right now pretty sad. How do you and how did you go in and make a sad song so beautiful? Well, Teddy Rundazzo who wrote all those songs, um, and the late Don Costa, a great producer. You know, uh, that was a good combination, a good team, man. And he, Teddy was like most writers; they write their, from their experience. And he, he he wrote from experience. He had really bad marriages, and his, his one of his wives just wrote, wrote him crazy. And so he would write things like "I'm on the outside looking in." That's when she dumped him. <laughs> right. And then uh, and and then he says, "I'm going out of my head." He was divorced and happy, and it hurt so bad. See, so I understood where he was coming from as a singer. I was able, reasons I don't know why, I was able to interpret that, what his feelings were when he wrote the song, and that's how I did it. Was there, like, before you went in with records like those, like, or any records, like, what kind of conversations would you have with the writers and producers? Like, would they talk about that, like, how they're how they're feeling writing it, or was it like... Was it like... No, they don't, no, they don't, generally, they never, well, to me, they never did, I mean, maybe other artists, I don't know. But um, um, uh, you just knew it. You know, once you once you're working with somebody for a few years, you, you know their personal life. You know what I mean? Right. So obviously he was he was tormented by those. It was, it was just bad time. You know, from when he had, he he just didn't do well with the, he, I don't know poor Teddy. And he just <laughs> he, he was he was a ladies' man too, man. You know, he was in love with love. You know what I'm saying? So he was in love was, with love. Yeah, and when he would get hurt, you know, it's it's a show. I mean, he wasn't miserable, it, but I could tell, I could sense, or he would we'd be talking. He said, "Yeah, um, yeah, we were living in Vegas," and he's telling me, you know, just talking. And so I got it. And so when I got a song like "Hurt So Bad," it was easy to interpret his emotions. But somebody talking to him, it's like an right. actor who will go out and he's trying to get a, 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 develop a character. So if he's of a fireman, say he's playing a part of a fireman, well, what would you do? You go to the fire department and you hang out with firemen. Mm-hmm. That's how you get it. Do you have a favorite record when you look? Is there a favorite record you've recorded? Yeah, I heard so bad. I heard so how bad. Come? Uh, I don't, you know, that's a good question. It was, I think, the epitome of what he was feeling at that time. You know, his children, you know, it just was a mess. And I just sensed it. And, and it came out. Uh, Nancy Wilson once told me, she said, that's why she re-recorded it. She did it. Quite a few people recorded it again. The Elvis Gerald did. She did go to my head, too. But but the one thing she told me was, man, she said, when you were singing it, you could just feel the pain in the person that that happened to. And so she wanted to do it her way to get it, you know, understanding what was happening.
so yeah, it hurt so bad. It was, it was, it was good. It was good. And, I, and, and there's a lot of reasons. I was doing hurt so bad in the studio, Bell Sound Studios in New York, and then uh, I'm looking up at the booth. But people don't know where that is. That's where all the engineers are and the producers and the record all and people. They're in this little booth. There's a big window. They're looking down at you, and they talk over the microphone to you. So, you you know, it's soundproof. And I looked up there, and I saw this guy, big guy, and with uh, with um, with Don Costa. So when I did Hurt So Bad, when I did it, Don was so pleased. He just waved this. That's a good take. And then they gave the whole orchestra a break, you know? And this guy comes downstairs, and I'm looking, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. It was the champ, Muhammad Ali. That's He came and hugged me, and that's how my relationship built when he became a, I was, became a friend of his from that time on. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, he, he, he went, he, he was fooling he was around the studio. He was fascinated with all the, the instruments, you know? So he sees his violin laying on a chair on top of a stool. And he goes and violently picks up and goes, ring, 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 ring. And all of a sudden, you see this guy coming and coming and go, oh, 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 Mr. Craven. <laughs> oh, that's a Stradivarius. And what happens? Ali said, a swat? <laughs> he said, no, you, you understand. And I said, yeah, man, that, that thing could be over $200,000. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He didn't know. <laughs> That oh was the beginning of my relationship with him. Yeah. And his manager, Dundee, all them guys, man, I knew them all. Wow. Was there, was there a similar energy or, or anything similar that you noticed between uh, Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King? No, entirely different people. Martin Luther King was a, was a man that had a, a pulse mm. of the heart of America. He was trying to get America to see, without violence, without anything like that, how bad this is, and that the people's consciousness started bothering them, and they realized this got changed, and that's what mm. why things changed. Whereas Ali was more like Malcolm X. Mm. We going to, we we going to take this by force if we have to. You know what I'm saying? Right. That kind of stuff. So we're two different sides, but they was total respect for each other. Total. Ali was like a big kid. A lot of that stuff you he did, it was just an act. He even mm-hmm. told me where he got it from. It used to be, I don't know if you, you're, you're old enough or, I mean, you remember there was a wrestler named Gorgeous George. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So he used to love to see Gorgeous George. He loved the wrestling. And so he, he looked to see, and Gorgeous George, wow, man. And he noticed how he would go people, get them, you know, whatever, to make them, get everything up. So he just created this character that just got by his nerves. And he, you know, grilled vanilla, and he would do this and that. The, the bat, uh, what he said, um, he called uh, my man, and no, oh, shoot, Dracula, because he had no teeth in his front of his teeth. <laughs> I forget <laughs> my name. Yeah, yeah. So he would do all of that, and he would just jump around. But when you was with him, this is how he talked. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'm saying there's two different people, because it was. That wasn't who he was. He was putting on an act. And it worked. Howard Cosell knew it. Right. He was a great entertainer, Ollie. Great he, entertainer. He, he, he was a great entertainer. And he, came, and he actually had, after all of a sudden done, he's done and retired, and he went to Joe Frazier and made peace with Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier actually believed 
he was angry at them all the way up until they were older men. Until Ali reached out to him and said, man, I, all that stuff I call, I said, it was just an act. But look how much money we made, man. See? Damn. Yeah. Wait. So that was, it, 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 he was, and he was socially conscious, though. Ali was so socially conscious, man. Obviously, know that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, but he, and, and he, like, he, he used to kill me. I was, we were working in, we were working in, in Lake Tahoe at the Sahara Hotel. The, since then, the stage its name, but at that time it's called Sahara. And he, 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 I gotta watch my time. He's, he, uh, he, he, uh, was working there and, um, I was on stage and then all of a sudden I hear, yeah, I can sing better than you. <laughs> <laughs> she realized, you know, and this singer said, God, I can sing better than you. And he came up on the stage and everybody went crazy. Chap, Ali, oh. He came up, he started playing the coolest. He's crazy. When I was down in Miami, where he really hung out, that's where he really, actually it was almost like he lived in Miami. He's at that gym. He's going to his, uh, the train a lot in Miami. And uh, oh. I was playing, what's the name of the club? Little Dollars. Little Dollars. Okay. A- and I'm singing. Here it comes again. I can sing better than you. We, 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 we were in this other hotel once he did. He would do that. If he was in town, he'd just come to the show. And he started doing all this stick, you know? And the audience just loved it. <laughs> oh my god. That is too cool. I can't believe that. When you when you look at, you know, what you've been through and like you were just saying how Martin had the had the had the pulse of America. What what's a piece of advice you could give looking at today, two thousand eighteen, the state of America? What what do you what's a piece of advice you give to everybody? I don't know, yeah, you know, you, a lot of times people say Oh, we got to get together and this and that and that. But, you know, this country has always been two, two, two halves, always. You don't believe it, it's called civil war. You know? Mm-hmm. It was always a country of two halves. And even during the Depression, it was a country of two, two, two different beliefs, two different, you know. But that's what makes America, America. Now, now, it's a little bit bitter that I've, I've never seen it as bitter as it is today. Oh, that's to understand. I mean, come on, sign of the times, man. But other than that, people are still people. You know? When I perform, you meet people and get different, you know, but music tends to bring people, they don't want to think about a lot of stuff. What you don't want is starting to bring in all that political stuff in comedy. That's not the, the reason why people go to see comedians to get away from reality. Right. The reason why people go to sing and hear music is changing. The reason why people go to movies and theaters and it's to get away from the mundane, everyday things of life. Now you start to inject that into there, where does one go? Yeah. It gets in sports. It's all around you, exactly. It gets in music. It's not, comedians today to me, basically, are not funny. Because they, they have to use the day's uh, political thing, and they make that like, that's funny. It's not funny. I, I know funny, man. I've been around funny. That ain't even funny. Yeah. That ain't funny. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know why I'm people right. stand, you know, some people eat certain foods, fast food, and they eat it, but they really don't, you know, it's not a, it's, they're just used to doing it. It's a habit. Not that they go yeah. out really want to get a steak or something, you know? So that's right. the only thing I can think of, but just the last, as there's no, man, Johnny Carson is gone. It's It's over. I don't even look at it because yeah. I don't. I, I don't want to hear all that. Once you get into right, right. that area, I just tend to get up and just walk away. 
That is that is a key right there, folks. Sometimes it's better get up, walk away. <laughs> don't engage. Walk away. I mean, just, you know, the greatest invention I've seen. Two things I always say. The great, two greatest inventions to me is a remote and a back scratcher. <laughs> greatest inventions, man. You ever get your back itches? That's a horrible thing. How do you scratch your back? <laughs> Oh, Great invention. Man. You don't want to hear anything on TV? Put it on mute. Put that bad Change boy on mute. That's oh, it. Oh, man. Gems. Under <laughs> all the multi-million dollar studios he's seen, folks. And there you have it. The two greatest inventions. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like it's just, it's just uh, when things get crazy, I'm out of there, man. You know, I went to the funeral to celebrate the... Uh, this wonderful woman's life. But there were people there, unfortunately. Most people there for that same reason, most of us. But there were people that the politicians, what did they do? Politicize this poor girl. Listen, right. we're there to, 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 to um, enjoy and celebrate her life. And you could have interject politics. You know, I, I had to I'd leave. I'd go. Yeah. Yeah. So, Absolutely. but anyway. That's how that rolls. Mm -mm -mm. 77 years, still keeping it raw and still keeping it real, man. And that's why, that's why we love you. Yeah, man. It's cool. And I, I enjoy this life. It's a good life, man. Yeah. I got yeah. all these grandchildren. I've <laughs> my granddaughter just went to school. She's, she's with us. My mom lives with us. And um and and just all these grandchildren and great things happen to me. I got my make my I got a grandson who is uh four years old, the youngest grandson, and my oldest grandson is thirty seven. Jeez. Oh, I, like, I had eight, eight children. Yeah, eight children, thirteen grandchildren. Fourteen grandchildren. Yeah, fourteen grandchildren. And eight great grandchildren. Ooh. Bless, man. I mean, like, when I look at, and you know, it, it's just fun being around them, and I'm, I'm, it's fun being around these kids. It's fun. How how old when you start teaching them to sing? You can't teach anybody to sing or play ball or anything. That's a gift. They get from God. Period. Mm. Either you got it, or you don't. I have several of my children sing, and some of them don't. I have a daughter that can't hold a note, and she would always come back and sing Happy Birthday. I said, Please don't sing Happy Birthday to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then my other sons, um, myself, Damon, Tony, Daniel, really good singers. Wow. Natural to them. They didn't do it that much. My, my son, Damon, he had a little band for a while, but now he's in the, he's in the aerospace business, so he's doing that. But um, but in any event, uh, no, it, it's genes. They pop it. My oldest, my, one of my oldest uh, daughters, Antoinette, sings. So it's just, it, it, it the genes jump, you know, genetically from one generation to another, and it takes what wants to pick. Oh my God, man, you were something else. You real Jesus. Let's see, let's see, let's see if we could warm some New York hearts. Let's. Uh, we're we're gonna leave you guys with this one. We got one important question to the legend uh, in regards to the Giants this season. Will the New York Giants bring their New York faithful ten plus wins? Be nice. I, I'm. I'm going to say. I'm. I'll play safe. I'll give a prediction: ten and six. 
10 and 6. That, that is a, enough, a, a, enough to get him into playoffs, yeah. A giant prediction from Little Anthony, who I guess on Sundays is Giant Anthony. And that, that, that's a playoff berth. And My granddaughter, she's a, this terrible over here, man. My daughter's worse than me. My daughter, oh my God, she's a giant fan. I, she said she told me it's my fault. <laughs> I used to buy some giant shirts when she's a baby. She says it's your fault that I'm a giant fan. <laughs> she screams at the TV. Oh, man, I don't even want to watch a game when she's in, in, in there. I'd rather go in the room. She gets too emotional, man. You can't put family on mute, folks. You can't do it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Man, well, man, man, cheers to you and the and the beautiful Hall of Fame career you continue to have. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. My pleasure, man. I enjoy that. It gets, you get to speak about a little of everything. Oh, yes, I enjoy that. When you get my age, you don't care anymore. See, that's the fun thing about being a senior. You get away with murder. <laughs> You can say something and say, hey, I don't care. <laughs> what I'm you going to do? I don't care. That's <laughs> not the proof. You know? it's, it's great. It's great being senior, man. Shoot, you get discounts everywhere. <laughs> I can't believe that. I, anything, man. I don't care where I go, man. I go, I'm a senior. How much discount do I get? Fifteen <laughs> percent, baby. Hey, man. Go to the movie. Everybody's like, oh, they're complaining about the movies are so much money. I only pay seven bucks. <laughs> 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 That's how you look at it, man. It's great. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, hey, let's uh, let's keep in touch, and hopefully uh, we catch a game this year. I hope so, man. Run into you somewhere, I hope so. Really, that would be nice. That would be nice. What do you got to say to the folks at home who uh, right now are listening? In in regards to when they when they crack open and they listen to your catalog, how do you want them to hear it, and how do you want them to think of it? Well, they'll hear it. Number one, if they like it, because not everybody likes you, likes the way you sing. I mean, but most people. You don't like when Landy. We don't like them. <laughs> they'd be surprised and be just like every kind of taste, man. You know. You know, one man's a lemon is another man's sugar. You know, <laughs> so it's if you listen. Well, it's just I like. Sometimes I listen to when I was young, and I I, I see the progression as the years go by. How I changed as a musician, and it's unique. And I, and that for that reason, sometimes I listen. I said that I actually saying that that is so bad. You know, but it. it it was bad only to me listening to it because I was me. But now as I get older, man, I go, I watch the difference. It's just remarkable. I'm sure. Every singer sees that. I don't care who they are. Sinatra saw it. As he got older and older and older, how his voice changed, how his interpretation has changed. And that's what, that's what it's all about. So I hope whoever listens to my music enjoys it. We sure do, man. And thank you for what you've done for for American music, for for the world's music, and, and for our culture, man, because sure did add some flavor. Thank you, man. It's a real pleasure talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, Little Anthony. A big thank you to Little Anthony for coming on the show today, and a big thank you for tuning in. 
Remember, for more episodes, just head over to charliebootshow.com and make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud so you don't miss a beat. And as always, for more or to follow us on social media, head over to charliebootshow.com and you'll see all the links right up top. Hope you enjoyed the show, and until next time, toodaloo from me to you. See you here next week. That's the Charlie Boots Show.